0: Thank you for choosing this British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast. My name's Sean Carmody and this evening I've got the pleasure of chatting to Nickel van Dyck. Nick is a clinical researcher and sports physiotherapist at the Aspitar Orthopaedic and Sports Medicine Hospital in Qatar. Uh, and he's made an enormous contribution to the field of sports medicine in recent years, especially through his PhD titled Risk Factors for Hamstring Injuries in Professional Football Players. Nick, I'm delighted to have the chance to speak to you this evening.
1: Hey, Sean, thanks for the invitation. Um, It's a real privilege uh, to be on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity
0: to to join in this discussion around uh, injury prevention. So, so Nicol and I are, are having this conversation, um, in early July, um, at a time when a lot of football clubs are, are returning to their, um, pre-season. Uh, and social media, I guess, has given us a chance to, to see, get an insight into kind of some of the screening these clubs are, are doing, um, in, in England and abroad. Um, I've seen lots of different methods and devices used. Um, Nick, in your, in your experience, what's the role of screening in preventing sport injuries? why do it, what works, uh, and how often should we be doing it?
1: Yeah, I think uh, screening continues to play a very important role in our injury prevention efforts. Um, But maybe it's worthwhile just taking a step back and and defining what we mean uh, with injury prevention. Because I think in sports medicine, we think about it a little differently than we do in general medicine. For instance, um, if we want to prevent lung cancer associated with smoking, we advise folks to just stop smoking. So we remove the exposure. And we've done that to some degree if we think about the work around concussion. Um, certainly, Caroline, uh, Carolyn Emery's uh, group at Calgary who has been successful in implementing rule changes at, at, at junior levels that, that limits or, ex- or stops that exposure. But if we think about hamstring injuries, um, if we want to prevent hamstring injuries, we can't tell our athletes or our players to just stop running fast. Well, we, we could, but that would make for pretty boring football games. So what we want to try and do really is estimate risk and then, and then manage that risk appropriately. So indeed, my work was predominantly focused around this, looking at the screening process and uh, determining whether we could identify risk factors associated with, with future hamstring injuries. And we did, um, strength and eccentric hamstring strength being the overwhelming favorite, as you would expect. But uh, the distribution of the injured and uninjured players completely overlap. So in other words, the strong guys get injured as often as the weak guys do. Now, um, that research has been um, used really, really beautifully in Professor Roald Barr's paper in 2016, where we demonstrated that you cannot, therefore, predict injury using our screening tests. So if that's what you're, why you're doing these tests, it's, it's kind of a non-starter. However, if your goal is risk management, I think screening has a very important role. So if we if we if we use screening to detect ongoing musculoskeletal conditions, so we certainly can do that and that's sometimes referred to as secondary prevention, or maybe to determine the status of old injuries, sometimes called tertiary prevention. So if a player had an ACL injury six or nine or 12 months ago, and you do your regular screening test, you can certainly look in more detail whether some of the elements you'd expect to be recovered is indeed recovered. In fact, Martin Wallen from Australia has shown us that um, monitoring or or screening can be very useful in secondary prevention efforts, but then we actually have to do that. We have to monitor our players and stop doing these isolated once-off tests. So, um, I think we can intervene appropriately if we manage our our athletes in that way. And we wrote a BJSM editorial last year demonstrating how we use screening tests to estimate risk, and that will influence the decisions we make. I mean, it's in the end still a decision, and there are still
0: many factors that influence that. How many times a season would you would you recommend a club do it, or, or is there any is there a right answer to that?
1: I think the monitoring question is is open for discussion. Um, maybe Martin Wallen's work um, is probably some of the first work that's actually done regular monitoring in, ki- in, a, in kind of a more investigative way. But um, uh, we don't know. Uh, and, you know, in professional football, it's so difficult. The congestion of matches and the amount of workload that we put the players through make it really difficult uh, to do a, a large battery of tests every week or every second day. But maybe there are some tests that we can do um, that's easy to use. Handled dynamometers come to mind Uh, that's not too invasive and that can be part of either warm-up or training or uh, or regular testing. So I think there are ways around it, but certainly um, haven't
0: done those experiments uh, in full yet. Okay. Um, as clinicians, we're always on the lookout for new innovations and, and what the latest research is saying. Um, there have been two modalities that kind of spring to mind that have gained popularity in the literature uh, for reducing injury risk, particularly on the BJSM um, over the last uh, few years, um, the quadrant of doom when it comes to hamstrings uh, and the acute chronic workload ratio when it comes to injuries in general. Um, but kind of recently I've seen some resistance to these methods um, What's your take on on the acute chronic workload ratio and the quadrant of doom to prevent injuries?
1: I think you're going to get me into a bit of trouble here, Sean. Um so I'll okay, I'll default to what uh, Nobel laureate uh, in physics and legend Richard Feynman said about the scientific process and um, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like if uh, if we think about the scientific process or or coming up with a new theory, which is in, in essence a guess. Uh, he said, uh, if it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. And and that's the, the simple nature of, of science. So it doesn't matter how beautiful your th- your theory is or how, how smart you are or what name you give it or who made the, the guess, if it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. Now, the current criticism, debate, conversation we're having around uh, the acute chronic workload ratio is a very important one because we are in essence all concerned with the scientific process um but uh, i'm not sure the definitive experiment around this has been done i mean certainly not in the way we've done risk factor studies in in larger and different cohorts now and they all point to the same thing we cannot uh, use continuous various variables dichotomously and then find cutoffs that that effectively separate out um, the the players that will get injured and those who won't. So I would say we still need to, to do that. And perhaps the most robust or, or the one experiment I do know of is, is Torstein Dahl in, uh, in Norway with the Oslo Sports Trauma Research Center um, and supervisor Ben Klarsten. And they're running a randomized controlled trial actually implementing an acute chronic workload ratio. So it'll be interesting to see what they s- show us. But... Uh, you know it's 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 one of those things the idea of this ratio sounds good we we obviously have problems with ratios in general they don't scale well at the end and, and there are some other theoretical components we have to consider but the idea of presenting your acute workload and your chronic workload in some way intuitively makes sense so i think we'll we'll see where we where we go with this and and hopefully more experiments are done that helps us to refocus and reshape our thoughts around uh, this important concept. Um, um, The Quadrant of Doom um, has become a a popular one too Um, and the amazing work by the folks in Australia, especially Tony Shield and his group uh, as well as David Opar at ACU now and Ryan Timmons, uh, uh, all all the gents involved there. Um, have really helped us to understand the idea of strength, but also then muscle architecture and then particular fascicle length. I guess the problem with fascicle length is that it's really um, hard to measure. It's one of those outcomes that are important but hard to measure and very operator-dependent. At the moment, of, of course, we don't have a probe or regular ultrasound probes, can't even measure the whole fascicle, right? We have to make an estimation. And I think all that science is pretty solid. but. It's hard to do, and so if you can do it, it's great. If you can't, then I think hopefully we'll have experiments now that demonstrate that we have proxies for this. And I think the, the most likely candidate would be exposure to high-speed running. So if you know if you've built up your exposure, we will probably give you the opportunity to have longer fascicles. And that's really what we, we, what we then should be looking at. As with all the other risk factors, uh, Nirav Manyar has, has, has shown us the distribution curves on the quadrant of doom which is a beautiful figure and then you see that again the injured and uninjured players kind of overlap there's a bit of a difference though it looks like the fascicle length might be uh, um might be a little different so that that's certainly promising but in the end i think we might get back to finding w- really good proxies such as strength and high speed running to make sure we've uh, we've done or we've done the job in in improving the the, the components of something like muscle architecture. And to me, it makes intuitively sense that if we're improving your tissue capacity, uh, and then we then do a good job in transferring that to movement capability, will uh, we'll protect you from injury.
0: Okay. Um, we said July is the time for, for pre-season screening. It's also time when lots of clubs are making new signings. Uh, Nick, if I give a hypothetical scenario where, imagine a club you're working for is is meant to be signing a top player who the new manager wants, the fans are very excited about and the CEO has promised to get the deal done. But at the medical, you note his history of seven previous hamstring injuries and you're concerned about his ability to withstand the 40-season game that lies ahead. For athletes with this kind of history... What interventions should the clinician be considering to to mitigate this risk and to to help the signing? <laughs> that's
1: that's that's kind of a million dollar question, isn't it? I think maybe important to to first remember again, you know, we we are ultimately in, in, uh, here to help the athletes attain their highest level of performance, and then f- for us, it's important to protect their health because, of course, a healthy athlete can perform better. Uh, you know, if I, unfortunately, if I if I say to a coach at the beginning of the season, "You're gonna have seven hamstring injuries in your preseason training camp, but you'll win the championship," I think we will go, "Great, I'll take it." You know, and and maybe athletes even the same. So maybe there is a way of doing both, um, and and that's really the tricky part. Now there are probably some attitudes and beliefs around what we have to do during preseason. Um, and then there are some things we really do have to do that goes with some level of risk. But perhaps we can still do better in managing that risk. And you know, as technology improves and we're able to build really individual player profiles, we'll be able to, to tailor some of the exposure to the individual and, and really help protect them in that way. And then I guess we need to understand what the group needs to do from a protective point of view as well, without that being detrimental to their performance. And that's really the key. We've got to merge this idea of, of prevention and performance in a more cohesive way and, and, you know, really get all the guys sitting around the same table, speaking the same language and understanding what it is we need to do because we're in the same game. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what we want. A resilient athlete... We, we've done as much as we can to to protect them from injury. That's performing at their ultimate uh, highest level.
0: Just just leading on from that, Nick. And um, there's a quote often attributed to Roberto Martinez, the former Everton manager, um, now manager of Belgium, where he says that if a soft injury, soft tissue injury, has happened, then something's gone wrong. Um, but actually thinking about a sport like Gaelic football where hamstring injuries are a big issue, um, I've seen at the beginning of each season a big spike in hamstring strain injuries as the coaches and sports style and stuff, um try to get the players to achieve the necessary adaptations to allow them to compete at the, the necessary level. Um, should we accept that injuries are a byproduct of of this high-level training?
1: Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, you know, I think research are often catching up to our, our clinical practice. And, um, you know, in this case, we we know, well, we certainly have learned from our strength and conditioning fraternity. Uh, but it's really, really common sense. That if you train too hard, too fast, you break. And then if you, if you are underexposed for what you need for competition, you have a much higher risk of getting injured or ill. So this is this is something we understand now much better. It's it's this relationship between workload and injury that we're trying to investigate. But w- we certainly see the same thing in our young track and field athletes who who come into the senior squad. It might be the same for football. They're suddenly exposed to way more than they're they're normally used to, and then you know they 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 have. Uh, a number of different potential injuries, such as a bone stress reaction or, or soft tissue injury. So we really need to manage this uh, carefully, but we need to manage it for all our athletes. I think the second part of the answer might be in in really b- breaking down the the barriers between the different members of the team. Essentially, we're we're all trying to to work towards the same goal, and we really need to learn from each other and build relationships where we understand how the different approaches are thinking about how to build a resilient athlete uh, that is able to perform at their highest level
0: scenario some of our listeners might be accustomed to is um, when a trialist who may have only played in grassroots before um, but is clearly talented comes into that elite environment um, where all of a sudden they're they're training three or four more times than they may have been used to per week um, and then you see them get injured and they break down um, but I think often we might be doing a, a disservice to them by expecting them to be able to just adapt to that um, environment straight away. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know, it's. I, I think most clinicians would see this as pretty common sense, you know. And, and a lot of a lot of the the work we're doing now is trying to actually build evidence around our clinical intuition. But I mean, um, especially from the medical side, you know, in in our world, this is this has been a real revelation. But the strength and conditioning coaches, this is this is really common. If you strain too hard, too fast, you break um and, and we've certainly seen that in some of our young sprinters who suddenly join the senior squad you know and then have um you know a, a might have a variety of different reactions uh brain stress or soft tissue or you know some sort of reaction that 's really evident that they've suddenly gone into an environment where they 're just required to do way more than they're normally used to so I think uh, uh, most clinicians would say that that makes a lot of sense. The question is how do we yeah you know, and maybe this is uh, um uh, building into the 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 real question is how do we engage and empower the coaches and the athletes in a in a way that's meaningful so that they feel um, like this this is what we have to do we have to have a more gradual exposure to this and uh, building some um, some uh, cohesion between our. Our medical team is trying to protect the athletes from injury, and the performance team is trying to build uh, the, um, the highest performer they can in the in, in in you know in the appropriate amount of time to get them ready for the season.
0: You've spoken before about having an inbuilt system to to prevent injuries in athletes. What does the future hold for this, and and where is the research going in this context?
1: Have I? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So I know I've alluded to this in one of our Tuesday morning lectures. They're all available online, by the way, um, on YouTube, if folks are interested. And, and we dug into some of this in the, in the Aspartar Journal uh, hamstring edition. Uh, and the latest Aspartar Journal will be out soon. So um, if you go to our website, aspartar.com, you can find them all there. But uh, I kind of think of the movie Back to the Future. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only fan where Doc says to Marty, uh, your future is what you make of it, so make it a good one. And I think we, we need to look at the models we've proposed in the, p- in the past, how we can improve on them. And we certainly have a greater appreciation now for building complexity or complex systems theory into our understanding of injury risk and injury prevention. And that's important for sure. I think we've always understood that from a clinical point of view, that these are multifactorial th- uh, things and injuries happen for a, a host of different reasons that, that often change and interplay. Now um, um, there are buzzwords around at the moment like machine learning and, and artificial intelligence, but these models or techniques were not to, uh, designed to answer why questions, and that's where we felt we could influence things for a long time, because if you had if we tested your strength and you were weak, I could make you stronger, but machine learning won't tell us about a factor. It will learn how to become. More accurate in how to understand the risk of something happening or prediction, if you will. And then it will still come down to decision making. So, if we take another complex system like the weather, for instance, uh, and let's use a a weather forecast of 80%, so there's an 80% chance of rain tomorrow. Now, that same forecast says that there's a 20% chance that there's no rain tomorrow. So, that forecast is correct whether it rains tomorrow or not. And so we think about an 80% chance of rain as a definite, that it's going to rain and you take your umbrella and your raincoats and you're ready to go. You're ready for what's going to happen. And then if it doesn't rain, well, we're probably not unhappy about that. We're just we're just okay that it didn't rain. We're not moaning about slugging our umbrella around. Now, if the forecast was opposite, if there's a 20% chance of rain, again, that means it could rain tomorrow there's a 20% chance of rain but it could not rain like there's an 80% chance that it won't and tomorrow unfortunately only happened once what happens once so now uh, if it does rain tomorrow and you didn't take your umbrella with the lower risk or, or lower percentage chance you're probably also okay with that because you knew what the risk was and you were happy to take it so in both those scenarios, we've made a completely different decision, so taking an umbrella or not, but we're happy with that decision, whether the outcome is either. And so that's, I think, the space we need to get comfortable in, is risk management and making good decisions. Um, zero risk of injury literally does not exist, but we can help the athletes and the coach and even you know the general public understand the risk of injury and illness better if we, if we uh, understand these risk decisions and we make better decisions. So we won't always get it right, but I think we can make sure we are doing our level best to protect the health of the athlete while, they're help- while we're helping them to achieve their full performance. And I think we need to do this in within the, the lens of complexity. But if maybe even more importantly, I think we need to work together. We need to learn from each other. We need to share what we do and hopefully build multi center, large, international, collaborative databases. Uh, that's the only way we're really going to move forward. And in that sense, everybody will be contributing. You know, like every clinician will essentially have to, or uh, which I hope we all already do, but look at what we're collecting, use the outcomes that we measure, share that, and understand how to better treat. Uh, the things we we commonly see because ultimately that's what we want we want to be able to provide better outcomes for the athletes um, and the folks in our care
0: I think that's a very sensible place to close this podcast finally Nick, um, for the listeners who want to hear more, you'll be speaking at the South African Sports Medicine Association conference in October, do you want to mention something about that?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited about the SASMA conference, it's from the 10th to the 13th of October in Cape Town Cape Town's a beautiful destination, so if you're keen on learning and relaxing, then this is a really good option. And the conference is always uh, um, really good in bringing the 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 research, the evidence into the clinical scenario. So, highly recommend that one. And then also very excited um, about uh, the IOC Injury and Illness Prevention Conference in Monaco next year. They've lined up an incredible program. I think you can still submit uh, workshops and abstracts. So. Make sure you check it out um, it's going to be a really really great opportunity to learn and to share um, with the injury prevention community um, uh, and then yeah if folks want to get in touch with me i'm uh, on twitter at nicol van dyke just my name and, and surname uh, and you're welcome to to get in touch and, and continue the conversation
0: brilliant thank you very much Nico. So you've been listening to a British Journal of Sports Medicine podcast with Sean Carmody and Nicol van Dyke on predicting and preventing sports injuries. We hope you've enjoyed it. Have a fantastic day.